The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. My name's Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. There was an international event that took place nine years ago that became a cultural phenomenon here. There was great anticipation for this event. There was constant chatter about this event. There were so many people downright giddy about it that it made the people that weren't quite giddy about it also look forward to it so they wouldn't hear about it anymore. There were people that were glued to their TVs and computer screens watching this event in the middle of the night to the tune of Tens of millions of people watching on YouTube. Do you have any ideas of the event that I'm talking about? It was the of Prince William of England to Catherine Middleton, a real prince marrying a woman who would become the, a real princess. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 45, a love song about a royal wedding. As you turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. We thank you for salvation that we have in Christ. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus this morning. Give us ears to hear your word. Lord, help us by your grace to put into action what you command us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The love song, it begins with a tribute to the king, and then the psalmist is going to move to the tribute about the bride, and we don't know much about either of this, this psalm. It's attributed to a group of guys known as the sons of Korah. We begin in verse 1, my heart is moved by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. This psalmist He's dwelling on the goodness of the marriage, and he's waxing eloquent. He's feeling poetic. He's just happy. And thinking about the king and the wedding, he's overflowing with joy. He's affected by it emotionally and wants to sing about it. And he's going to highlight five attributes of this king that I want to I note for us. We'll see the first three attributes in the next couple of verses Verse 2, you are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Mighty warrior, strap your sword at your side in your majesty and splendor. The first attribute is to highlight the king's appearance. And right out of the gate, we've got a major plot twist. This is not the classic formula for a love song, for a bunch of dudes to affirm how handsome some other dude is. I couldn't help but think about one of our members. Um, Connor Hips works for a ministry that enables him to spend a lot of time with pastors, often international pastors. And he, he would tell me this funny story about dealing with some South Korean pastors and that every time in their greeting, they would say, I'm not going to impersonate this pastor because... Uh, it's 2020, and that might get me canceled. But you can imagine the, how funny this accent would be. Oh, Mr. Connor, you are just so handsome. Oh, Mr. Connor, you get more and more handsome every time I see you. 
Now, I will impersonate Connor and say, you know, it kind of makes me feel awkward, but it makes me feel good too, you know. So it, it starts, starts out here, the, the psalmist is saying, you are a good-looking man. You're handsome. The second attribute is that he recognizes his gracious speech. The, the, the king speaks with kindness. He speaks in the way that Paul encourages us in Colossians to reject coarse speech and instead to have our words seasoned with salt to impart grace to those that hear. The third attribute is the, the psalmist affirming the king's power, lest we think that he's just some good-looking, smooth-talking, softy. No, he's actually a powerful, competent warrior. We read on in verses 4 and 5. In your splendor, ride triumphantly. In the cause of truth, humility, and justice, may your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Your sharpened arrows pierce the heart the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall underneath you. What's this king about? The fourth attribute that the psalmist highlights is that the king is about justice. The truth is very important to this king. He's about righting wrongs, and he never uses his power to abuse others, to marginalize the weak. He's about protecting the innocent, punishing the wrongdoer. He acts for the for the cause of truth and righteousness. And he's humble. He's competent. What a guy. We read on in verse 6. And the psalmist is going to begin to shift his direction from the king to God. And this is where it's going to clue us in to, to the fact that this psalm is not ultimately fulfilled in a human king. But there's, there's another that's intended. Verse 6. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companion. This is how we know that this psalm is about the line of David. It's in the line of David, and it's important for us to know that. It, it doesn't matter which king it is. It could be Solomon or, or some others down the line. But we know that it's a fulfillment of what was said in 2 Samuel 7, where Samuel says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up an offspring for you, David, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. David will build a house for my name, but I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the psalmist says this throne is eternal. It's forever. It's never going to go away. The scepter. The scepter is the, the staff in the king's hand. It's the symbol of his authority and his power. And the psalmist says that, that the scepter of the kingdom is a scepter of justice. It's a, it's a scepter of uprightness, of righteousness. Therefore, God has anointed you more than than all of your, com your companions. You are unique. You are blessed as a king in a way that, is, that no other king before you ever has been. In the end of the, the psalm, the, the psalmist will turn his attention to the bride, saying that she's now under a new loyalty, that she's stepping out from under her father's roof, coming under the king's roof, and now she's loyal to him. And he describes her as, as just beautiful, resplendent, um, in, in, in beauty. 
And then the the psalm ends with this really beautiful picture in verse 17. I'll cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. So how does this psalm point forward to Jesus? After all, that's the premise of this entire sermon series where we're taking selected psalms and seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of those psalms. I want you to, in, to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. This is one of the high water marks in the New Testament where, where Jesus' deity is, is defended, where his supremacy over all things is described, where the argument is made that he's greater than the angels. And in fact, in that first chapter, the author will take seven Old Testament passages, seven psalms, in fact, and apply them to Jesus and say that this is the reason why Jesus is great. So we'll start reading Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. Jesus is a better prophet. He speaks definitively for the Father. He's a better priest. After he made purification for sins, he sat down because the sacrifice was complete. It was perfect. It was finished. Now we see in the next verses that Jesus is a better king. And this is where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, verses 8 and 9. So he said, he said that the angels, they're, they're merely servants. That Jesus' name is greater than than theirs. That his rank, his role, his position is greater than theirs. Verse 8, but to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Angels are servants, but King Jesus is the one that's seated on the throne forever. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take the five attributes that we noticed of the Psalm 45 king and put Jesus in that place and see if he fits the test. Does he pass as the king of Psalm 45? First one, the appearance. And just like before, we've got a plot twist right out of the gate. Jesus was known to have a lowly, humble appearance. In fulfillment of Psalm 53, verses 1 through 4, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So what's the deal? Psalm 45, the king is so handsome, but now this king, Jesus, the one promised and prophesied from Isaiah is lowly, has no form, no appearance, no majesty. I want you to consider the argument that the author's making in Hebrews 1, that Jesus is greater than the angels. And, and what happens in every account in the scriptures when angels come on the scene? People fall. They melt like wax before the majesty, before the power, before the glory of these angels. And And the author has just gone through great detail to say Jesus ranks way higher than angels. So what does that show us? What does it prove? It it proves that Jesus stooped so low in coming to us. That in the incarnation, when he stepped out of the glory of heaven, the worship of those angels, perfect union fellowship with the Father, that Paul describes it in, in Philippians 2 as emptying himself, that he stepped down, that he took on the form of a man. He took on the form of a servant, even a servant that, that went to the cross. So we see right from the jump that, that Jesus humbled himself in an unbelievable fashion, that he stooped, he condescended to us. Second attribute, his gracious speech Luke 4 records Jesus reading the the scroll in the synagogue and that the the people were amazed. They're marveled at his gracious speech. John 1 says that that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And just tick through in your mind interaction that Jesus has with people in the Gospels. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about the graciousness that he speaks to to children that want to be around, let them come to me. Jesus seeks out the outcasts. He has meals with known sinners. To the woman caught in adultery and about to be stoned, he says to the crowd, hey, whoever's got no sin, you you be the first one to cast cast the stone. Woman, where have have your accusers gone? He speaks graciously and, and as a memorial for us, the church, we get to be reminded often when, when the elements of the bread and the cup are set before us where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. To everyone here this morning, to anyone in the neighborhood that may be listening, there is life and salvation found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There's no salvation outside of him. The gospel is all of grace Because King Jesus is full of grace. It cannot be earned. Grace is not what we've deserved. But we can know today that our sin is forgiven because our God is so kind. Third, his power. The Psalm 45 king is described as a a powerful enemy, uh, as a powerful warrior whose enemies fall at his feet. So with Jesus also. A day will come when Jesus will return, not meekly as a lamb, but roaring 
as a lion. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There are two ways in which sinners fall before this powerful king. One is to both ask and receive mercy, and the other is to sink under the weight of his wrath. If we despise his grace, then we will surely be crushed by his power. But we need not fear that because the scripture is clear that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is an unbelievable gift of God's mercy that, that all those who ask for mercy will receive it. The fourth attribute, justice. There are so many places in the Bible where, where saints look around at the landscape. They, they uh, think about their own experience and they cry out, how long, O Lord? This is, this is our experience Today, there's so much injustice in our culture. There's so much division. There's so many lies where the truth is not often able to be recognized. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow the, the innocent to be killed? How long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow the truth to be suppressed for lies to be pushed forward? How long are we going to deal with this pandemic that has affected us all, either personally or with family members those that we're, we love, the, even just trying to make decisions, make plans about vacations or public school options for, for our kids. There's frustration. We, such mundane tasks as trying to go to the store safely. How long, oh Lord? We face constant pressure, difficulties with relationships, finances. How long, oh Lord, until you come back and restore all things? Even... A great reminder that we've heard is singing this morning that God's kingdom is unshakable. Philippians 3, Paul, Paul says that, that our citizenship is in heaven. And we, we look there. We look to heaven and we eagerly await our Savior to come and rescue us. Church, he will come back. He will make all wrongs right and execute perfect justice. The scepter of his kingdom scepter of justice, and he is committed. He's devoted to the principles of equity and uprightness. Fifth attribute, the eternal throne. Romans 6, 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalm 45 king, perfecting justice and righteousness, loving truth and rejecting wickedness in bowing low to save sinners and freely offering mercy. I want to draw out three implications of Jesus' kingship for us, and then we'll be done. 
The first implication is the kingship of Jesus stirs our hearts to worship. I begin there because that's how the psalm began. That the the psalmist, they're, they're moved, they're affected by this royal wedding. Now, with a church like ours, this is a a unique danger for us. We rightly hold the Bible in high regard. We love theology. We love examining and studying doctrine, even with a topic like salvation, the doctrine of salvation. We understand our need for salvation. We understand how it is that Jesus has brought us salvation. We understand what we've been saved from, what we've been saved to. We understand that salvation makes us part of a spiritual family. We understand that salvation gives us a purpose and puts us on mission. But if we're not careful, we can hear all these things. We can see that Jesus is king. No, I know that Jesus is king. Church, we cannot be the kind of people that are intellectually deep, steeped in the scriptures, and yet shallow in our soul, unaffected, untouched by the gospel. What happens in in your soul when you hear that Jesus loves sinners? What happens when you consider that that Jesus forgives sin? Not not abstract sin, but your sin sin, the sin that that you have committed and that you still continue to commit? What happens when you hear that Jesus, Jesus say to his followers, his disciples, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. Does it do anything in your heart, in your soul to hear that Jesus is not sick of you, that Jesus has not giving, is not going to give up on you? We're right to know the depths of theology, but church, the deeper our theology goes, the greater we should be affected by that doctrine. It should move us to worship. Think about the progression Paul had that that he called himself a great sinner. He called himself the the least of saints. Then at the end of his life, he called himself the worst, the worst sinner. What happens when you get closer to, to the truth, the light, closer to Jesus, the greater you become aware of your own sin and your own failing. We should see with greater clarity in Jesus' kingship that our, our worship should be affected and aimed at King Jesus. Second implication, the kingship of Jesus invites us to fellowship. Look, look back at, at Hebrews 1, verse 9, ends with this curious phrase, that, that God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, it's common practice in, in anointing a new king to take some oil, put it on the king's head. This is what happened when Samuel tabbed David as the next king. They put, put oil on his head. He prayed for him. That is not what's in view here. What is in view here is is the oil of gladness. And in our context, we can read in, in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross 
out of joy. He had greater desire to obey the Father and complete the mission than to duck out. So you might be thinking, okay, how does that oil of gladness connect to inviting us to fellowship? It's greater oil of gladness than all your companions. So that begs the question, who are his companions? Well, it's, it's not the angels, surely, because the author's already made an argument at great length that, that Jesus far surpasses them. It's, it's not neighboring kings of other nations. That's not in view here. The context points to the companions being us, the church. I think it's a reference to Hebrews 2.10, the many sons. For it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make him the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. The same word used for companions in Hebrews 1 is used in Hebrews 3. Verse 14, where we're described as his fellows, his participants, having come to share in new life in Christ. So Jesus, our joy is great that that the king invites us to himself, invites us to a new kingdom, a new loyalty, a new life, but he invites us to fellowship with him. Friendship, closeness with Jesus. We have invitation to fellowship with God and his people. Third implication The kingship of Jesus makes all of life matter. All of life matters because with Jesus on the throne, every day matters. There there are no throwaway days. We look to King Jesus and his principles of truth and justice for informing our actions, for teaching us how to make right decisions. It's where we can marry our affirmation of Jesus as king with our practice of how we live. It makes life matter because it gives us purpose. We've been entrusted with the task of both displaying Jesus' greatness and declaring it. It makes life matter because it gives us security. We're held fast by the mighty hand of God. We have confidence to approach the throne because Jesus is there. It makes life matter because it gives us hope. This week in in our small group meeting, we we made the observation that it seems like Every single week in studying these messianic psalms that one of the takeaways is that we should have hope. Well, we church, we should not be surprised that where King Jesus is, there's hope also. With Jesus on the throne, we can surely have hope. We have in King Jesus a king that stooped low to rescue us. He has shown unbelievable grace in the gospel. He has demonstrated power in rescuing us from death and drawing us to himself in salvation. He will continue to demonstrate that power in bringing justice for he sits on an eternal throne. As I close, let me read from 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, let's pray together. King Jesus, we are amazed at your, your mercy. We are, are blown your kindness demonstrated to us in the gospel that you who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we pray that 
that you would come and meet with us where we are this morning. That, Father, that where we have grown cold to the truth that, that you are king, that you would light the fire again in our soul. Father, where we have um, distanced ourselves from you or grown apathetic in, in our walk with you, that we would be reminded that we can fellowship with you, our great king. Father, where we begin to, to lack purpose, where we begin to grow weary, where we begin to grow in doubt, I pray that we would be reminded this morning to look to the throne and, and know that, Jesus, you are there, that you are for us, that, that you are still with us to the end of the age. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Change how we live, Lord. Make us more and more like you. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.